a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could be part of my audience. Lines are open at 801-331-8113. Want to mention firesteel.com as well as the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you very much for being my sponsors. I'm, I'm actively looking to add new sponsors to the show just because there are some great people, great products out there that, uh, that I want to bring to your attention. And I hope that as you hear me talk about them, you will uh, will actually do that. You'll you'll go to their website, visit them, take advantage of, of what they have to offer, uh, because I wouldn't be sharing it with you if it wasn't hopefully something that could improve your life. So I had kind of an interesting experience today. And, and given how much I have been talking about uh, COVID-19, particularly talking about how, well, by the way, the CDC is now saying that uh, they have vastly overstated the number of deaths directly attributable to COVID alone. The vast majority of the cases that they said COVID-related actually had 2.6 COVID comorbidities rather that, uh, that went along with it. And most of the time we were talking about elderly people with heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, other complications. It's still sad when someone's life comes to an end, but... Um, this is one of those instances where you you probably wouldn't be justified in, in weeping. Oh, he had his whole life ahead of him. Yes, at 95 years old, his whole life ahead of him. I, I mean, it's it's sad anytime we bid farewell to someone, but this runs so counter to the narrative. Of, oh, no, no, this is so dangerous to everybody. And so I, I feel like we were lied to. I don't think it's too harsh to say that. At the same time, I have to temper what I'm going to be saying this hour uh, with the understanding that, uh, look, it is a real illness. It's a real virus. And and this is really strange. I dropped my son off at his job earlier this morning. And as I was driving through the neighborhood, I was thinking about uh, one of my neighbors who moved away just about a year ago. And was uh, just thinking about him, thinking, man, I I miss Sam. I wonder how he's doing. And I thought that was kind of cool. I haven't thought about him for a while, but he crossed my mind. Just truly one of the best people that I know. And as I sat down and was doing some show prep and getting things ready to go, I noticed a post from Sam's wife on Facebook, and she indicated both of them have been dealing with COVID. Now, for her, apparently, it was a fairly mild thing and something that uh, she got over fairly quickly. You know, the symptoms were minimal. She was back at work within a very short amount of time. Sam, unfortunately, has developed some complications, including um, bacterial infections in both lungs. Bad enough that uh, he has had to be admitted to the hospital. And so as much as I rail about, uh, you know, this is this is uh, it's a bunch of crap how we're being, you know, backed into a corner and told to wear masks and so forth. I have to temper this with the understanding that, look, it is real. Sam's not in his 90s, by the way. He's a young guy. He's just just a little bit older than me. And, uh, you know. It, it can affect people. So I'm not trying to minimize that there there is risk out there. At the same time, I think we need to acknowledge that risk can be vastly overstated. 
And while I'm mentioning this, if you are a person who is inclined to uh, faith and to the power of prayer, could you maybe exercise a little faith on behalf of my friend Sam? I would, I would truly appreciate that. All right, so let's begin. Let's talk about fear. The wages of perpetual fear. I think it's pretty safe to say we have been under a lot of fear these last few months. In fact, fear is driving a great deal of what's happening in this country today. Saw it over the weekend, you know, the fear that that Black Lives Matter or Antifa, worse, we're going to show up with busloads of activists and rioters and we're going to lay siege to uh, one of my former uh, stomping grounds, and that being St. George. Now, fortunately, it didn't happen. Whatever protesters there were were just a tiny handful. Nobody came, you know, prepared to firebomb or block roads or otherwise terrorize the population. But hundreds of people turned out in response to show that, look, we're not going to let this happen here. Some of them were armed. Many were not. Many carried signs, flags, just, you know, they, they were just people standing up for their community. And I'm not faulting anybody for making that stand. But I am going to point out that it all started with rumors and fear is what spread the rumors it was a rumor yeah they're coming here they're coming here they're gonna they're gonna bring the riots to us now i'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility maybe they'll get around to that at some point but we got to be careful if we allow fear to become too much a part of who we are it does things to our brains and, and I have to credit, Paul Rosenberg is the guy who first introduced me to the idea that uh, when someone's trying to make you fearful, when they're trying to make you scared, it's a pretty safe bet that person is trying to hack your brain. And, and most likely, they're trying to hack it so that they can get you to do something you wouldn't normally do in less fearful circumstances. So he has a, an essay. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. It's titled The Wages of Perpetual Fear. Listen to what he points out here. This makes a lot of sense to me. Paul Rosenberg says, I've gone on for a long time about fear making humans stupid and about it even being a weapon and a brain poison. But he says, I've also wondered at times whether people would hit fear fatigue, that point where people have simply had enough fear and they walk out from under it. As it turns out, however, he says, I was a bit optimistic on fear fatigue. I've been reading Robert Sapolsky's newest book, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst, and was disappointed to learn that what the, new best, or what the best new research shows on the long-term application of fear, or in academic terminology, sustained stress. But he says, my disappointment was soon tempered by two things. Number one, I gained information on how fear poisoning works. And secondly, the human neurology is immensely variable that there are exceptions to everything, and if the whole picture was actually as dark as the most troubling findings, we would have devolved into nothing but murderous monkeys a long time ago. Now, he says, I barely need to say this, but 2020 has been the year of fear. I'm a bit amazed by the extent of it. He says, there's a certain appeal to soaking up all the fear stories in normal times. Our ability to look evil in the eye makes us appear vibrant. But 2020 has pushed far beyond that level. What we're encountering is much more than simple fear porn. And there are certain outlets, including websites, that I can only describe as obscene. This is more destructive than people realize. So he says, I'm going to quote from Sapolsky, who is one of the best neuroscientists of our time. 
And he says, I'm going to edit a bit to simplify and to remove the brain area references and will follow the passages, passages with a few elaborations. So here's a quote from Sapolsky. During sustained stress, we're more fearful. Our thinking is muddled. We assess risks poorly and act impulsively out of habit rather than incorporating new data. Paul Rosenberg says under a long stream of fear, like scary headlines, our thinking breaks down. He says, let me put that very simply. You may be very bright in essence, but when you consume hours of fear every day, you become stupid. And please understand, this is biological. Your brain operations become those of a stupid person. And he says, yes, I'm using stupid very unscientifically. Now, he says, you also bear in mind that fear works. People selling fear on TV, web pages, and social media are being rewarded for it. They have become, using my terms loosely but not unfairly, drug dealers, selling damaging material that more people, that people rather become dependent upon. Moreover, he says, these are professionals. Social media companies are fully aware that their business models depend on people being addicted to them, and they're careful to keep them addicted. These fears people consume then are coming to them from people who are cashing in from it. Okay, I'm going to pause right here for a moment, mainly because we're coming up on a break. But think about that for just a moment. With whatever social media you consume, if you consume any at all, I know a lot of folks have walked away from it. Have you ever thought about the idea that there are people who are cashing in on you, clicking on whatever clickbait title they put out there? Look at the wording of those titles. How many of those titles contain buzzwords that are calculated to hit the fear center of your brain? Or worse, the anger center, since fear and anger often are, you know, very closely related. Does that make you feel a little bit dirty? Make you feel a little bit used? Someone is cashing in on it. And by the way, I'm saying this with the sincerest prayer in my heart. Hopefully, I'm not one of those people. I want to think that I'm sharing something with you other than fear. Although I admit, sometimes the fear gets the better of me and I pass things along that can be darn scary. We'll come back to Paul Rosenberg's article, Just the Other Side of These Messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout-out here to the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather. Now, you know, a mortgage is not something you enter into lightly, right? I mean, it's, it's probably the biggest signature you're ever going to put on a piece of paper, or at least a signature beneath the biggest amount of money you're ever going to address. And you want to get it right. You want to make sure that uh, you are, are being taken care of, nothing left to chance. This is why I recommend the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, Patriot Home Mortgage is a very interesting success story in and of itself, Started in little old St. George, Utah, it's now grown to have 23 states within its circle of influence. They have lots and lots of horsepower to get things done for you, whether you are looking to refinance your existing home mortgage. Maybe you are in the market. I know a lot of people are moving. This is particularly true. People coming from larger, more metropolitan areas saying, I'm getting out of here. And they are coming to, what do we call it, flyover country, <laughs> the hinterlands. 
and they're looking for a new home loan. Well, if you are locating within the reach of the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, look them up, staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. If you know someone who's moving, tell them, check this out. Brian gives him his highest recommendation, staplesmortgage.com. So we're talking about fear and the wages of perpetual fear. Safe to say most of us have been under perpetual fear for at least the last few months. Now, I I know we kind of get used to it. It's crazy, isn't it, how we adapt to that sense of, well, you know, this is just the way things are. And it stops looking so weird after even just a couple of weeks. You know, people get used to putting on their mask as they go in the store or keeping social distancing and whatnot. But there's, there's even more that happens when we are in a state of fear. And in this case, uh, Paul Rosenberg is citing an author by the name of Robert Sapolsky from his book, Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Here's another quote. He says, "Stress weak- this is Sapolsky, stress weakens connections that are essential for incorporating new information that should prompt shifting to a new strategy while strengthening connections with habitual brain circuits. End quote. Okay, now Paul Rosenberg says, in other words, fear locks you into your habits and previous choices. It literally diminishes the brain pathways that allow you to change your mind. And he says, this is serious, and I suspect you've seen examples of this already. I don't know if you have followed, you know, the self-destructive traits that some people turn to when they're under a lot of stress, be it alcohol abuse or drug abuse or you know, other forms of addiction or sometimes even taking out their their frustration on the people around them, domestic abuse. But there are some really good examples. Back to the book, quote, under sustained stress, we process emotionally prominent information rapidly and automatically, but less accurately. Working memory, impulse control, decision making, risk assessment and task shifting are impaired, end quote. And again, Paul, Paul Rosenberg says, prolonged fear locks people into whatever path they're already on. And again, this is biological. The brain circuits are directly affected. Now, he says, still, from everything I've written above, and there are many other nasty effects like domestic violence, it would appear that we are doomed, that our neighbors who've drunk deep from the river of fear are brain locked. And so far as the fear stream continues, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. They will get more and more rigid in their biases, and that violence will continue and increase. And he says, by the way, for some people, all of the above will be true. Fear destroys in the most direct way, biologically. Still, biology is not simple. It's never simple, and especially on the human level. While the things above are generally true, he says there are always exceptions, sometimes a lot of them. And it's those exceptions that have saved us time after time. The wages of perpetual fear are polarized and locked minds, and that ne- that leads to knee-jerk opposition, violence, and murder. We're seeing that now, and we stand to see it for some time. The world, it seems, has become addicted to fear. And yet many of us refuse. And this is a long way from over. And I love that he gives this example. He says, there was a party in my neighborhood two days ago. Music, talking, playing, laughing, and so on. It was the first joyful noise I've heard in public for a long time. His point is, life finds a way, especially human life. So while I appreciate him sounding this voice of warning, I also appreciate him pointing out that we can find a way if that's, if that's a priority to us. And I hope it is. 
I want to be aware of all the things that are going on, too. I mean, I want to I want to see it coming so I can prepare. But I don't want to be so focused on all the bad things that are going on and all the storms that are approaching that that's all I can see. And that, to me, is the big challenge. Striking that balance to where I can be aware and have the situational awareness to, to see danger before it becomes unavoidable, and at the same time, not to be so hyper-focused on danger that that's all I'm ever looking for. I have a couple of friends. They're, they're former military guys and um, have served very honorably. I mean, we're talking lifetime careers. And it's very clear. We see the world through a slightly different prism. They have the experience. They were trained to view the world through eyes that are constantly looking for enemies, for threats. And they're very good at, at spotting them. Sometimes, in my opinion, they're a little too good in that if this person isn't 100% on board with what I think, then they are an enemy. And sometimes the, the thinking becomes a little bit absolute. We want to live our lives with awareness of what's going on around us. At the same time, it's not only the bad things that you notice when you are truly paying attention. You got to be making a serious, concerted effort to pay attention to the good things too. One of the one of the things that I loved, and this was from uh, I think it was from Masad Ayub, from his book uh, "In the Gravest Extreme: The Role of the Firearm in Personal Protection." He talked about the importance of of living in that uh, I guess what what some would call the color code of awareness. Condition yellow, so condition white would be totally unaware. You're you're daydreaming. You know, when you get attacked by a mugger, he came out of nowhere. Actually, the mugger didn't. You just didn't see it coming because you had your mind a thousand miles away. You were thinking about, what do I need to pick up at the store? Have I paid this off? Why is the car making that funny noise? You weren't thinking about what was going on in your immediate environment. Whereas a person who is in condition yellow would have looked and noticed and said, Woo, that guy is staring hard at me. And now his movement seemed to correlate with my own. What can I do? To avoid him, cross the street, duck into a store, drive away, whatever it may be. You see the difference, right? It's just simple awareness. It's not like, ah, I must prepare for combat. If you can see the problem before it becomes unavoidable, it doesn't have to be your problem. And unfortunately for a lot of people, what I've just described here sounds a lot like, well, then I have to go around with this grim face of determination, you know, Weighing everything, dashing up to each corner and sneaking a peek around before I run the, the next corner in a three or five second dash. No, you don't have to live like that. The kind of awareness I'm talking about is, yes, I'm paying attention. I see the two guys standing there looking shady. And if that sounds like a discriminatory thing to determine, trust me, if you've walked through enough cities, you, you will recognize some people are looking shady and, and you should probably pay attention. But you also notice the good things. And I think it was Masad Ayub who pointed out, you will catch things that other people might miss. The young couple standing in line, you know, at the supermarket, you catch that little secret glance, you know, between lovers. And it's not that you're intruding on their their privacy. You just, no, there's a little, little firework there, you know, whatever. You see the things, the good as well as the bad, and then incorporate it all into your overall awareness of what's going on around you. Does that sound unreasonable? I guess for some people it might, and maybe it is. But I think the point by Paul Rosenberg is is very well taken. Don't let prolonged amounts of fear hack your brain and lock it into bad circuits or bad habits. And it's easy for any of us to do. I think the cure starts with awareness, so I'm going to work on myself. 
you want to work on yourself, hey, that would be great as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, a big shout-out to our friends at firesteel.com. And a shout-out to my listeners. Thank you so much, those of you who responded and went to firesteel.com and purchased either one of their fire steels or their ferro rods or magnesium fire starters. They have a lot of tools to choose from, and I appreciate those of you who not only went there, checked it out, and said, yes, this would be a great addition to my personal preparations, but you also posted a picture of it and shared it. It's very cool stuff. It would make great gifts if you're looking, you know, to get some Christmas shopping done ahead of time. This is the kind of stuff I would give to people I love who I wanted to make sure that they had that little, you know, extra insurance policy of being able to start a fire if they absolutely had to under any conditions. So, firesteel.com, when you get to check out, use my name, Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, and they will take 10% off your purchase price there at checkout. Pretty sweet deal. All right. Let's get back into uh, the topic here. Uh, let's talk about why we don't trust the experts. Now, I mentioned earlier that the CDC has revised quietly its uh, its numbers regarding how many people have actually died of actual COVID rather than COVID combined with 2.6 or more comorbidities. But I think one of the biggest reasons why I'm very skeptical, and this has been going on now for quite some time, since about June, is that public health experts seem to be trying to tell us that, uh, you know, it's, it's a bad thing when the president has a rally or for the Republicans to get together for their, uh, for their convention. Uh, but uh, when people get together by the thousands to protest, you know, a, a death in police custody or, you know, to otherwise protest police or riot or protest racism or whatever it is, that's all A-OK. And by the way, I'm not saying, they, you know, all, all protests should be shut down because, you know, those that have the goal of perpetuating freedom seem to be very, very dangerous in the eyes of these public health experts. I'm just saying their double standard is showing. There's a great article here by Wesley J. Smith. This is in uh, NationalReview.com. And he says, too often these days, expert advice is really just politics pretending to be objective truth. Well, that certainly rings true. Here's a perfect example. Public health experts have had conniptions about public protests against economic lockdowns while enthusiastically supporting large demonstrations in support of Black Lives Matter. Some have charged the sector with hypocrisy and for that clear dichotomy of perspectives. Oh, no, it's not right. Bioethicists and physicians from the Ethics Committee of the Society of Internal Medicine in the Hastings Center blog. One cause supports more important public health goals than the other i.e. eliminating racism, and that makes all the difference. This is from their ethical analysis. Quote, Black people die at the hands of law enforcement more than others and are disproportionately policed and incarcerated. The resulting mass incarcerations have significant health consequences for inmates and their families. The pandemic has also disproportionately affected blacks who are more likely to be essential workers and live in crowded conditions and thus are at increased risk of contracting and dying from the virus. 
Black people also experience discrimination in the health care system, contributing to worse medical outcomes. Historically, civil rights movements have led to progress with a positive impact on public health. Therefore, the Black Lives Matter protests against police killings and mass incarceration and for equal treatment are aligned with public health recommendations, with the exception that they are taking place during a pandemic. Whew. As the article says, that's one hell of an exception. It's a lot of sophistry, too, but that's another story for another time. So Wesley Smith says, why are the anti-lockdown protests bad, but BLM's good? The former hooligans are rebelling against the experts. Oh, that's why. While individual readers, say the experts, will weigh these arguments with their own values, there are legitimate reasons for viewing the anti-lockdown and Black Lives Matter protests diligently from both a medical and societal perspective. The most straightforward argument is that the purpose of the anti-lockdown protests is diametrically opposite to medical recommendations, while the Black Lives Matter demands are consistent with public health imperatives of overcoming racism, end quote. Now here he asks, do you see the sleight of hand? The lockdown protests are judged from a medical perspective, which is objective, while the BLM protests are justified from a public health imperative, which really means subjective politics. Medical perspectives are scientific and require unique knowledge most don't have. Such advice should be objective. Oversimplified, it's either safe or unsafe to engage in mass marches or vigils during the pandemic. The perceived righteousness of the cause is irrelevant. Moreover, he says one could actually present evidence that the ubiquitous BLM marches are much more perilous medically than the relatively few anti-lockdown protests, since the former are exponentially larger, far more ubiquitous, and occur with much greater frequency, and issue these experts somehow overlooked. In contrast, judging whether the respective protests are right or wrong from a societal perspective is not something that requires medical or bioethical expertise. It's a subjective determination that takes into consideration the objective medical perspective, but which also depends on the values, morals, and politics of one opine, of the one who's opining. We don't need experts to tell us what our opinions should be. Yours are as valid as theirs. Now, crucially, the authors don't grapple with the profound corrosion of trust caused generally when experts express and or validate their own subjective opinions as if they were objective scientific pronouncements of great weight. People smell the politics and turn away. That's pretty spot on. Again, this is from Wesley J. Smith, author and senior, fe- senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. And yes, there will be a link to this in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Dot com. I like that. <laughs> that that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, I want to talk about uh, something that some of you will be familiar with. Hopefully, everybody will be familiar with by the, by the end of this segment, and that is the red pill. I don't know if you remember when the movie The Matrix came out. Man, has it been? It's been like 25 years ago or close to it, 23 years ago. It was a while back. But that was one of the very curious aspects of the show, red pill. Neo, the main character, is offered a choice. If I show you the truth about our reality, you know, you're going to have to take the red pill in order to acknowledge it. If you take the blue pill, you're going to go back to sleep, and it's going to be like nothing ever changed. You don't have to know the truth. Well, he courageously takes the red pill and wakes up and realizes everything around us is an illusion, and we are all essentially part of a giant computer simulation. By the way, uh, spoiler warning. A little too late there. Anyway, it's become a nice uh, term that we use now amongst ourselves. 
You know, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. There are a whole lot of people on the political left who in the last few months, as they've watched violence surge through their cities and recognized the police cannot protect me or my property. They've been red pilled into realizing, hey, that right to keep and bear arms, not such a bad idea when you may be facing potential violence at the hands of, you know, rioters or protesters or just ne'er-do-wells out there smashing, burning and beating people for the fun of it. So I want to share with you a thought here from James Walpole. This is from his uh, website, jameswalpole.com, History as the Red Pill. He says, it's a meme now to call any radical mind-changing moment or idea a red pill, hearkening back to the red pill, which awakens Neo to the nature of his machine slavery in the Matrix. Everybody has their own version of the red pill and their own idea of what is being revealed when it is taken. He says, I think studying history, and particularly studying the history of thought, is one such red pill. Now listen to his reasoning. He says, until you study history, you have no frame of reference for what is normal. You likely assume your expectations of normalcy from your, uh, of normalcy rather, from your expectations of the lives of your contemporary peers. Then you learn about hunter-gatherers and the dawn of agriculture and the industrial revolution. And if you're paying attention, you realize that how you live isn't necessarily normal at all. You realize that the way you live and how you think about it is shaped by thinkers who died a long time ago, of whom you've never heard. There was a debate between agrarians and industrialists once upon a time. There was a debate between progressives and conservatives. There was a debate between loyalists and Whigs, even. None of the outcomes were unstoppable or inevitable. And how you think of the victorious outcome may be lopsided in favor of the victor. That makes sense, right? Because they're the ones who write the history books. So James Walpole says, when you realize this, you can finally stop separating yourself from your historical subjects in an important sense. You, like them, are a product of the past and a resident of history. Beyond this, he says, you might also wake up your mind about whether or not what you received is right or not. That sounds like a pretty friendly and gentle challenge. How do you know that what you have been told about history is right or not? I mean, is it something you can take on faith? Well, my history professor would never lie to me. How do you know that? Have you sussed out the facts on your own? I know, we're all busy, but uh, how bad do you really want to understand the world around you? The ones who want to understand, they'll study history on their own time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I am so happy to have you as part of my audience today. And just a, a quick aside here, if you go to thebrianhydeshow.com and check out the show notes, you will find that uh, there are always articles that I don't have time to get to. I just put them there because I find them interesting. And so, you know, if you're looking for something thought-provoking and hopefully enlightening, I, I try to find things that will actually add some value rather than just raise your blood, your blood pressure. And I'm going to also say that you will find a nice little link there to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't done it yet, please consider doing so. In fact, if you have friends who are asking you, hey, you have any good podcasts to listen to, maybe recommend it. 
see what they think. I mean, what's the worst that they can do? Come back to you. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Anyway, and if you wish to become a patron and and be a regular supporter of this program, we have that option as well. You'll find a link in the show notes as well. Again, at the com. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. I've got Ray on the line. Hi, Ray. Ooh, Ray, we're going to try this again. I'm going to hang up, and he's going to call me back. It's, uh, I don't know what happens. Occasionally, we get a little feedback loop that builds up there, and uh, anybody with hearing aids <laughs> goes absolutely nuts because it, it it's very painful. But call me back, Ray. We'll give this another try. All right, here we go. Much better. Hi, Ray, go ahead. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. You know, technology is supposed to help us um, to have things go work smoother. <laughs> but, but sometimes technology um, doesn't quite work, work infallible, does it? No. When it works, it's great. But when it doesn't, well, it's a good scapegoat. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, appreciate you taking my call. And, um, you, you know, I think the problem with uh, not trusting our experts is first we have to know what their agenda is, you know, because everybody is looking through a, their pair of glasses, you know. So, you know, are they a Christian? Are they a Muslim? Are, you know, are they Jewish? Are they atheist? Um, everybody's looking through their perspective of life. And, and see, in 1961 and two, they took prayers and Ten Commandments out of school. So, that you know, people used to believe in the basic ten things that, that uh, makes a, a country strong. And one of the ten things is thou shalt not lie. And, and so, you know, now they took it out. Now we're, we're living in a society, you know, in the 1800s, you know, the way to get ahead, all the success literature, was uh, character, you know, being... Uh, you know, loyal and honest and trustworthy, and um, all these characteristics of a person with high character. This is the way you get ahead. But nowadays, you know, we're, if you go to the library or to the bookstore, all the success literature is just talking about how to manipulate, how to get what you want. It's not a matter of truth anymore. You know, truth is according to, you know how you perceive the truth. There's no absolutes, which is crazy. You know, so so when our experts are talking, we have to find out now that they're not into truth. Everybody's coming from their perspective, so it's 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 almost like you can't trust experts. You got to find out what their, you know, agenda is, and then you see why they see things as they do. But they're, they're not seeing things as things are. They're seeing things as, as they perceive them to be. Um, well you said. Me? I do. Ray, thank you. I appreciate your take on this. Have a good one. 801-331-8113. I, I, think, it was, I think it was my friend Paul Rosenberg who, again, uh, stated this truth so simply. And it goes along with what, what uh, Ray was just talking about. When an expert is telling you, you have to do this, it's a good idea to ask, okay, is this connected to anybody's agenda? And I especially start looking for what politicians are standing there promoting them. Well, you know, Dr. Fauci, why don't you tell everybody how the cow chewed the cabbage and then everybody do what Dr. Fauci says. Experts or um, science, if you will, attached to authority 
is very, very suspect. And you can understand why, can't you? Well, our experts are impeachable, unimpeachable, rather, and they uh, therefore cannot be questioned, and therefore you should do everything that they have to say. I mean, I I shared a few months ago, this was back at the beginning of all of the lockdown stuff. Um, NPR had this segment on people aren't trusting the experts, and boy, let me tell you, the experts were not happy about that. They were complaining. These people think that they know enough that they can they can actually make up their own minds about these these subjects that they, they have no depth in. But here's the kicker. You do not have to have depth in a particular subject to be able to ask relevant questions about how that subject or how policies surrounding that subject are being applied in ways that affect your God-given rights. In fact, you should be an expert on what your God-given rights are and why they matter. Because you will find that uh, there are a lot of experts of whom you should be extremely skeptical. And it's okay to say, you know what, thanks, but no. Because, <laughs> you know, th- this, is why, this is why some people want to hitch experts to the authority of the state. Because then it becomes mandatory. Then it becomes enforceable. And yet, as we've just learned, you know, in the last couple of days... The experts had it wrong or the experts were fudging the numbers and they were trying to make things sound worse than they actually were. People who questioned that weren't out to cause harm or weren't out to, you know, kill grandma in the name of earning a buck. They were people who understood what their rights are and were willing to stand for it. And I am so grateful that I live amongst a lot of people who take that sort of thing seriously. Yeah, there's still fear. There's still uncertainty. There are things that are unknown. But if you can at least develop a sense of moral clarity, what's right and what's wrong, no expert is going to budge you from that. If you really, truly can can have that sense of discernment between right and wrong, as opposed to, well, this is legal and this is illegal. Those are artificial designations. You pick something bad, slavery, Jim Crow laws, the Holocaust, legal, all of them. Done by the book. Well, you've got reams of paper here showing. We were just following the laws. But were they moral? See, there's there's a difference. Got one other article I wanted to share with you, and I'm just going to hit a couple highlights here. This is from David S. D'Amato. It's the danger of our left-right political divide. I just wanted to hit a couple of high points because this is a major concern. He says, for years, a consistent refrain in American politics has bewailed an increasingly polarized political atmosphere. As the Pew Research Center observes for the first time in almost 25 years, majorities in both parties express not just unfavorable, but very unfavorable views of the other party. Americans, the Pew study shows, now look across the aisle with fear, anger and contempt committed more strongly than ever to their respective teams. On college campuses, disagreements that might have been thoughtful, even friendly debates, have erupted into violent melees, ending in injury and damaged property. Attacks and intimidation, it seems, have become a part of American social life. But he says the conspicuousness of America's political polarization belies a counterintuitive insight. The belligerents of the nation's social and political war are actually very much alike. Culturally and aesthetically, the groups appear quite different, Yet their political philosophies share a common heritage rooted in the anti-enlightenment ideas of the first half of the 20th century. Gripped by reductionist groupthink, a toxin generated by the United States' acrid culture war politics, left and right are moving, regressing, in fact, 
toward their most crudely authoritarian incarnations. Bingo! He nails it. Their declension recalls the totalitarian communist and fascist ideologies, ideologies rather, of the early 20th century. Classical liberalism effectively sidelined. The familiar battles of that period are reborn in the violent confrontations between the MAGA alt-right and black-clad anti-fascists, both groups equally enthralled by collectivism and intolerance. Now, there's more that he talks about here. I'm just going to have to skip ahead. I want you to read the article, which you will find at thebrianheidshow.com. But he says he talks about at present group identity and its insignia are an all consuming obsession of both the left and the right, just as they were of the fascists and communists who marched in the streets eager to spill each other's blood. Both sides carry and carefully guard the kind of sustained righteous indignation that comes with certainty of the religious kind. And he says that kind of certainty is dangerous to a free society. Once it takes hold, the virtues of the cause held beyond any doubt seem to excuse any crime committed in their pursuit. Orders must be followed because the ends justify the means. A free and open society requires the round rejection of both left and right flavors of failed 20th century authoritarianism. The restoration of the classical liberal ideas that transformed the world and yet were never given their due. This is The Brian Hyde Show.